What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Facade. I'm your host, Gavin J. Gallagher, and on this podcast, I explore the mental and emotional game often playing out subconsciously, both in your mind and the mind of everyone else in the real estate or property investment market. The key to success in this game is to master your mindset and behavior, to take control of your thoughts, your emotions, and most importantly, your ego. Welcome to the show. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode. And I guess I should start with an apology because I missed last week's podcast. And it's not often I miss an episode. Uh, but what happened last week was I was actually in London on Monday to speak at a, a conference. Well, not a conference. This was a private group called the Developers Club. And it's a bunch of uh, a lot of London-based guys, but a lot of UK-based developers that are building residential schemes across the country. And they're all, uh, you know, go-getters, interesting people, and they asked me to come along and speak at that. So I was at that on the Monday. It put me under a bit of pressure then for the rest of the week. And Valentine's Day being Valentine's Day, I ended up, uh, you know... <laughs> Listen, it's an excuse. I apologize. I'm sorry I missed it, guys, but uh, I have actually been quite unwell in recent weeks. I've been now two weeks trying to recover from, first of all, I got a bacterial infection um, and I fought that off with antibiotics. And just as I recovered enough, I went to London and then came back. And sure enough, on the way to London and back, I don't know whether I picked something up there, but I got a viral infection then. And so I am still a little bit under the weather, but uh, I wanted to get this podcast out. And this is a interesting, very interesting conversation, very enjoyable conversation with a lady who is a property investor for the last 15 years. And this is a great, uh, one of the reasons I really enjoyed this conversation is because Susanna is very curious person. And so she actually asked me a lot of questions as well. And so there was an awful lot of give and take in terms of the conversation flow. And so it's probably going to be a little bit different from some of the conversations I've had before. But I do think you're going to get tremendous value from this. What's interesting about Susanna's story is that she started out 15 years ago, a single mom with no uh, with two kids, and she had no money at all to start the journey into property investment. And so how do you do that? Well, that is what Susanna is going to explain in today's discussion. And then we're going to go on and she's going to explain how she now lives part of the year in Barcelona. All of this is made possible by uh, having passive income from her property portfolio. Now, she has actually gone through a number of very serious challenges over this time period and she's going to explain a lot of that in today's conversation so I think you're going to get a huge amount of value from today's conversation and so without further ado my conversation with Susanna Cole. Susanna Cole welcome to the podcast. Very nice to be here very nice to be here. I think we're going to have a very good conversation. I'm looking forward to it Susanna and as we were just chatting there there's a lot of stuff that we have in common and that we're going to enjoy this conversation for the uh, for the benefit of the audience, and we have a very international audience that you know all over the world, and so it's it's always interesting to have a new guest on. Can you just give a little, we'll say thirty second kind of intro to yourself, so that people can just have some context first of all? Sure. So I am actually Scottish, although I sound English, um, and I live part in Bristol and part in Barcelona. Uh, got into property, uh, but 
15 years ago, just over 15 years ago, um, and didn't have a lot of money, had two small children to support, one parent, two kids, so no plan B. So I did uh, that classic route of deal sourcing, joint venture flipping, borrowing money from investors, buying my own property portfolio. And then three years ago, uh, she took a sabbatical, which uh, was supposed to be in Bali, but for certain reasons ended up not being. And uh, I actually didn't work for three years, supported by my properties. There you go. That's a great intro. And it's going to get a lot of people kind of curious to hear more. And um, like that first initial uh, story you mentioned that you started out with two young kids to support and stuff. I mean, I always like to start with the bit of backstory that what brought you into property. And so uh, why don't you just kind of give us a little bit of a rundown on your the reason that you got into property and what was, you know, where did you learn about property being this potential source for financial freedom? I think it, it, here in, isn't it, in Britain, we kind of, you know, our mentality for your international listeners are, you know, in English, uh, home is a castle. Uh, and I think if people, our culture is that property is kind of important and significant. And my dad was a professor, my mum was a teacher, but my mum used to run uh, the young entrepreneurs group at school. Oh, nice. I just kind of all was like, ooh. And in my early 20s, I worked, you know, I was quite, a, I was quite, I was quite kind of into society being fair, which I still am, to be fair. Um, and I, I worked for some cooperatives and I started my own fair trade business and I grew. So I was always a bit, a bit of an entrepreneur, you know, at university, I had a, a club night because there was no dancing and I love to dance. So, you know, here's me, here's me kind of got a stack of cash around my, around in my stomach, you know, in, on my bag and my, being a little bit nervous about my, my, my bounces because I thought they're probably going to jump me for all that money soon. <laughs> um, so I did, I did some things, you know, some businesses. Um, so I always knew property was a really good idea. Uh, I was always interested in being a little bit, um, stubborn-minded, shall we call it, as an entrepreneur, and um, but getting into property was scary. Uh, uh, but but the reason I wanted into property was that tug. That I don't know if you you found that yourself or maybe folks you work with that tug of. I want to spend more time with my family. I don't want to be doing you know sixty hours a week at a, a job because I had quite decent jobs. You know, I'd gone through an MBA in order to bring in more money for my family to live. So you, you're trying to pr protect and support your family, but then the job is taking time away from your family. Yes. So I can't I can't marry the two. They, they just don't live with each other. And I, I, as a parent, need to be with my family and support my family. So I felt that property was quite a secure bet Ah, yeah. <laughs> despite its ups and downs to get into, but I didn't get into it quickly. I spent a long time reading books and then I spent a long time writing a business plan and, uh, and then I finally got into it. So it took me 18 months, 18 months. Wow. Okay. To decide. Well, that, I'm I think, I think yeah. it's good that you took 18 months because I see, I mean, some of the clients I have in my coaching business and some of them are very young, very eager yeah. and uh and real action orientated and of course there's a great it's great to see that yes but, but they also i'm often having to warn them not to you know get to you know get into sprinting before you can learn to walk yeah. and that you can find yourself with severe cash flow difficulties if you're not careful yes. and, and, and actually my um my first 
proper business. You've only got property business was in my very early 20s and it was a fair trade business. And I developed up to five shops in Scotland and I was supported by the Prince's Trust. So mm. how cute is this? I, I, I started off with £40 a week grant from Prince's Trust and the local bank manager was my financial advisor and the local accountant came in and helped do my books for free. You know, it was literally kitchen table stuff. Uh, um, but what it taught me was cash flow. So Monday morning with a piece of paper, I'd predict the week's takings and then I'd buy the stock just enough to be able. So that was a really brilliant uh, lesson yeah. uh, of cash flow. A small fry, small beer compared to property. But, but the, the principle can. and the yeah, the principle of cash flow and watching to make sure that you don't lose yourself uh, in cash, because at the end of the day, I, I try to remind people that it doesn't matter how profitable the deal is. If you run out of cash, you are out of yep. business. You know, yep. it's like you might make a million at the end of the deal. It doesn't matter if you run out, if you're 10,000 short in, you yeah. know, and you can't find a way to bridge that gap, you're That's out of business, you know. That's right. I did once, um, and I'm sure you had, I did once have 38 pence in the bank and a team to pay. Wow. And, 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 and multiple projects to pay for it was not the most fun moment of my life. No. And how do you get get out of that? Because that sounds like almost a fatal kind of position to be in. Uh, and I've been in that situation as well. Um, how did you get out of that uh, particular situation? Uh, so I, I, I hate to leave. I can't quite remember how I got out of that particular one. But I've had, um, I've had, a, a, but gen broadly how I managed my cash flow. I mean, I got out of it, but. Um, it would have been through, you know, ridiculous hundred hour week, you know, to try and get out of it, to be quite honest with you and sweating yeah. and not sleeping. But um, how I generally got out of it was trying to run multiple streams of income. And that sounds glib and easy to do, but, it, but it's not necessarily. So um, I would always try and run a deal packaging business for quick cash flow. Yeah. Good, good, you know, charging 5%. None of this too grand a deal because you you can't even function on that not yeah. not if you're running a proper business and then i'd run joint venture flips so the partner would be doing all the funding but we would be doing all the work so they did nothing and, so and ironically I've, I've been kind of sweat equity and and you do work hard for it yeah um, and then the third cash flow if you like was obviously making sure my yields were ideally 17 to 23 percent on my rental properties but of course as you're building a portfolio that's stealing not stealing that's just sucking money away from you rather than giving you money back because every penny goes back into buying more houses and then my fourth cash flow and i was pretty strong at this was working with investors so people would lend me money directly and then they get paid back with interest. But I had a rule which was never borrow more than a million pounds at any one time, which sounds like a lot of money. But I've, I figured it out that if it went horribly wrong for the rest of my career, if I had to go back to a job, I could probably pay a million quid off yeah. before I retired. That's why I just didn't borrow ever more than a million quid cash. As advice that I could have taken back in the day. <laughs> the um, and tell me this, uh, you're you you mentioned that you did an MBA, and clearly having an MBA behind you is going to be good in terms of convincing investors. Um, did you find that to be the case, or uh, I mean, in, no. 
No. Okay. Interesting. (laughs) I think it helped with some bits of critical thinking. Uh, But what the MBA actually was good for was corporate. So, so, so I ran a business until I was 29 and then um, Princess Joss brought in an amazing advisor who had 70 shops right. in Scotland. He took one look at my business and went, the only way you're going to expand is by growing, uh, by by working harder. This is not a scalable business because everything yeah. was so bespoke. I was in, in bringing in goods from third world countries, paying a fair price, fair trade business. So so he, he said, uh, you know, I commend you for what you've achieved, but I would tell you to shut this business down. <laughs> Wow. Well, I mean, it's 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 sad, but it's true, isn't it? That like fair trade, it's it sounds great in theory, but if it's not scalable, then it's always going to be, yeah, basically hand to mouth kind of existence. Yeah. And, you know, for the for my age, I was earning okay money. But yeah, basically, I would call it hand to mouth, not because of the profit at the end of the year, but exactly what you talked about earlier, the cash flow you know, Monday morning, you were, you were skidding every week, you know, it's no way to live in the grand scheme of things. So I, the MBA actually helped me go and get four professional jobs. Uh, and I always knew I was coming back out the other end as an entrepreneur. And those four professional jobs really helped me learn some, some skills like, you know, the professional planning or fundraising. But I was only like two years in each job, you know, boom, 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 right? Let's get out of here again. You know, and when you were doing that, did you were you doing anything on the side, or was that you were one hundred percent focused on those jobs, and you didn't have any kind of side hustle on the go? Well, my children were at that lovely, you know, young age of sort of oh, just that beautiful age up until about twelve or thirteen, where you know you put their you put the school uniform on the on the very burn the night before so they come down in the morning they got warm clothes but yeah I was I bought three family homes that I could barely afford and and because I don't watch a lot of television at night time you know the kids are in bed I don't want to go out the kids are at home so at night time I would renovate the properties myself and each of the three doubled in value and I sold them as soon as they were ready and then we bought the next one and the next one to try and build my equity up so were you removing you you were moving from house to house basically were you yeah Yeah. that's an interesting thing i did that myself as well and it's a it's kind of like a house hacking in a sense because you you're using your own home uh and the growth of the equity and you don't have to you know you obviously have to live in a kind of ramshackle place for a while but it's worth it and and also the great benefit of it certainly speaking from an irish perspective there's no tax on your principal private residence Exactly. Here too. No yeah. tax. So if you and double I, your money, that's all of your increase. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I did. I had a really great, very dry lawyer that said, now you do realize that none of this, none of this is your own effort. It's entirely the market. And what was amazing about that was he wasn't trying to be rude because he was actually a really good guy. It was a it was it made you just go don't get ahead of yourself kiddo but it also taught me segmentation so when I when I then did flips at scale I was cookie cutter you know same tile same toilet same shower same carpet same paint everything was the same just different properties but yeah. here I did bespoke um so everything was home, bespoke. yeah 
Yes, and and it was all you know, like even in my house here just now, you know, I've got um, Art Deco uh, stoves that came from France. Well, where did I get them? eBay. They're not actually super expensive. You know, I've got a 1950s Aga. So that bespoke commanded, and even after Lehman Brothers went down, um, I hate to say this in case they ever find out about it publicly, I got a hundred grand over asking price once the 2008-2009 recession hit because it was bespoke. Yeah, that's it. And it's it funny you say that because it's the very same that happened to me with, uh, I moved from house to house to house, but my best one was I moved into a house that was a three bed and I extended it into a four bed, but I built this huge big family room and I completely refurbished the gardens and everything. And it was very bespoke. Um, yes. But I had paid... 390,000 for it and I sold that property for 1.9 million in the end Ooh. and so it was just now you're talking yeah but the funny thing is is it was it was the bespoke design that commanded the purchase yes. price correct and it wasn't that I mean and I do take on board the the runaway uh, you know the market is running away and of course there was a huge amount to do with it but the reality is is that if you make a beautiful beautiful property you could end up with two or three wealthy buyers bidding right. against one another. And that's right. the difference it makes, yeah. And I've been thinking about that recently. So so what I couldn't afford to do when I was scaling was the bespoke, I needed it to be cookie cutter. You know, when we're doing like 30 flips at the same time, it had to be cookie cutter because it was just yeah. too much otherwise. But I've been thinking just that generally, you know, people talk about a, a celebrity mindset and I don't mean that in a derogative way. Denise Stuffield Thomas talks about celebrity money. Well, she talks about money archives, uh, archetypes. And I always was kind of mm, about the celebrity, but I'm realizing now it is it exists. And what it is is people that always want the top end. Now, at no point am I suggesting this kid is celebrity, but I found myself going into John Lewis the other week and I went, okay, ready for the latest iPhone. And, my, and I'd already figured out which one I was getting, but I just said to the guy, I want that color, uh, biggest one, latest one, highest spec. And then it dawned on me without sort of, you know, puffing myself because I wasn't doing that, that I was behaving in the way that what we would call a celebrity archetype would be behaving, saying, not worried about the price, give me the best. Right. Yeah. And so I think if we turn it back to our customers for the segmentation of bespoke, they're just saying, I want it at yeah, whatever yeah. price it comes at. I mean, OK, they cut, they're not going to spend 200 million. Um, and that is an, um, not many people go into that segmentation. Now I'm not a candy brother and I'm never going to be right. <laughs> um, but I did, I did sit the other day for um, beside a girl who's one of their designers and it was fascinating because they're in a different segmentation, but they've understood their, their celebrity client. And so yeah. money's not the object. Uh, and again, if you look at Apple, you know, yeah. what, what do they charge us for a cable? I mean, yeah, I know. But even that I was looking at their new these new goggles that they have coming out yes. and they're three and a half grand. And yeah. like they will sell hundreds of thousands of them. They won't sell yeah. millions, but they will sell a lot because there'll be people out there that just have to have it. And that's yeah. that's what it boils down to. I just it's, spent a grand and a half on a phone. How ridiculous, <laughs> you know? So, yeah. so I think we need to take that and be brave if we want to do those kind of projects and realize that celebrity bespoke actually is very beneficial. The risk is, of course, there aren't that many clients wanting it. But if you make it desirable enough, they're going to fight for it. 
Yeah, as long as it's in the right location, because yeah. obviously they they want the best, and that also means the best location as well. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And tell me this. Let's let's dial back the the clock a little bit, Susanna, because there's a lot of people that be listening and they'll be wondering. You you mentioned deal sourcing. Let let's learn a little bit of that about that. And this is what's great about this is so many people that I'm speaking with, they they they're trying to you know scramble together that deposit to get started and you didn't have that deposit you started by doing deal sourcing and first of all for the people who don't know what that means please explain what you mean it's like being a reverse estate agent but don't let that put you off if you're you know don't 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 be walking away from the podcast now <laughs> so what i mean by that is an estate agent doesn't buy the property and 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 doesn't need to apply for a mortgage or put down a deposit but they get paid a fee when they sell a property and that's the same so what i would do is i would find a property if it was worth 100,000 you know 45 pieces of research so really make sure it's worth 100,000 i would need to find it for maximum 75,000 and ideally 60,000 60, but typically i'd be finding it for 66 to 67,000 pound it's worth 100 I would then uh, pop it on. So, let, so let's just make our figures easy, shall we? If it's worth 150, I need to be finding it for about 100. Yeah. Okay. So then I'd be like, hey, here's a property. I got it under offer for 100. It's worth 150. Here's my report. Here's my evidence. Would you like to buy it? Yes. Okay. Pay me 5%. So you get a property worth 100. So worth 150 for 100. It's cost you a five grand fee. You're still quids in, I'm quids in, everybody's happy. And we were doing between 48 and 53 of those a year. So that then helped build up investor relationships and also money to buy properties. So about one a week, rough, approximately. Yeah. yeah and rough. were you, when, when you, when I, when you use one a week, I mean, you weren't finding and selling and making your fee in a week i presume you were you had multiple go on the go at the same time yeah the fastest we ever got paid was four days but that's almost like a little cheat that was with one of my favorite investors paul and we figured out that we wanted to buy something pre-auction um and so that was very fast and we'd worked together before but typically six to eight to ten weeks later so so basically you get paid on exchange so typically, it's when the investors pulled their money together, either their mortgage or their uh, bridging loan, and then their lawyer has said, okay, good, your, your funding is ready, let's exchange. Now, there's no need for you to get paid on completion, get paid on exchange, because your job is done. You have pulled the project ready for the investor to be bought. So and is it is it just, uh, I mean, in terms of a property that's, you know, it sounds easier said than done possibly like that here's a property worth 150 we can get it at 100 like yeah. does that include refurb work that you kind of assumed or anything or you were just simply finding good good finding good deals but um oh let's see so i'm getting excited now i'm starting to move around on the sofa and mm. um, so there's no way like say it was yourself there's no way i'd be like here's a property worth 150 i've got it for 100 oh by the way the refurb's 50 no way you know i just wouldn't even be interested in having that conversation with you it would need to be because of course i had done refurbs by that point i i'd need to know um what was needed for the refurb and do a rough assessment of the refurb value myself so maybe maybe i'm like it's a 10 grand refurb you, you know for 150 to uh, 
thousand pound house from a hundred. Otherwise, yeah. it's not worth it to you. Um, yeah, yeah. And we started off actually telling them because we started off getting our invest our builders out because I always used to run at least three sets of builders uh, with like another six cycling in case those one of those guys died out. And we started off by giving them the the, the refurb quote from the builder. But after a period of time, because you you know you you kind of toughen up, or you get you get you get a couple of little punches, don't you? you realize, whoa! After a period of time, we stopped giving the actual quote for a couple of reasons. They would then use a different builder, and it'd be more expensive because they hadn't got a wholesale builder; they got a retail builder. Or, and I saw this a few times, they go, "Could you just, uh, you know, you know that? Could you just?" Then you're like. Okay, so I thought the quote was twelve grand, and you've just made it twenty-four. And yeah, yeah, yeah. They're like, Can you well, add this in and that in, yeah. and all this kind but of because stuff. they were inexperienced, they'd be turning around and saying, "Suze, you said it was twelve. and I'm like, "Yeah, but you added this," you know, and they yeah, couldn't yeah. quite get it. So after a period of time, I stopped giving a quote on what I thought the build would be or the, what our builders told us the build would be, and I just wrote down everything that, if it was me, I would do on that property. Yeah, yeah. It was or a range, yeah. Yeah, because then if they want us to run the refurb, that's no longer a source deal. That's a joint venture. We're going to buy and sell it together. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. And tell me this, Susanna. I mean, in turn, like you you started this in 2011. 20, 2009. Oh, yeah. okay. Well, I see, because I was just thinking about in terms of the timing. I mean, obviously, you're in the right place at the right time. The, the, the 28, 2008 crash property values had fallen down. People are kind of trying to get out of, you know, property that they've maybe over purchased or whatever. And so yes. you had lots of rich pickings in that situation. I mean, I will, no. I would have assumed, I would assume that if you can buy, I mean, nowadays, certainly we have a housing shortage here in Ireland, like a, yes. a massive crisis. And I can't imagine that there would be too many people that could go out and find something at a 30% discount. Do you know what I mean? Oh, I, can. I, I don't mean that in any way other than just factual. I 100% can. Oh, oh my goodness. I, I, I'm doing it when I'm not trying to do it. So so let me, I, I think it's, first it's it's regional. So I'm, I was sourcing in Bristol. Now Bristol's a very affluent area, a couple of universities, a whole bunch of colleges. We get brain drained from London. You know, once they have a little toddler, they're like, oh my Lord, I don't want to live in this smoky place. Bristol, it's amazing because people come to Bristol and they never leave because it's such a right. great city to live in. So what Bristol did was just freeze. It didn't drop. It just okay. froze. And it froze for about three years and then it slowly started climbing again. Whereas I got a friend that, whose property portfolio was in Stoke-on-Trent and it took her property portfolio 10 years to come back to value. Wow. Nothing happened in Bristol, it just froze. Interesting, um, yeah. And, and then, so that's the first part. So we weren't being thrown deals at all. It was all our activity. And then the second part is even in the highest part of the market, I was still finding discounted deals because it's just the activity. One or two every hundred is sold discounted. So you just mm. got to do the activity. And when I was out in Barcelona, I found three deals and I was like, stop it, stop it. Radical, <laughs> you know, just, just by talking to people and finding them. And so you mentioned you you mentioned a stat a stat there one to two per one hundred yes so so describe your your sort of research uh, you know you, you would be looking at every deal that's going in the in the in the in the area yes. looking for that specific needle in the haystack kind of yeah 
Yeah. And um, what we're, what we're, um, people, I don't mean they make a mistake like I'm better than them, not at all, but they make a mistake of thinking, oh, if it's on offer for like 200, I've got to pull the price down. Nah, I've never had any interest in that. I, I would be terrible at uh, negotiation because I've got no interest in that because that wasn't what I was doing. Because my presumption was if you've got it on offer for 200, you're probably wanting, I don't know, 200, probably. Yeah. So, yeah. so we, Never. I mean, I don't think I looked once ever on Rightmove or Zoopla for a deal. And that a lot of people waste a lot of time doing that. We only wanted to find the deals where price was not the indicator. That was the only, so, so, so 99, 98 properties being sold. Of course they want more money because they need to upgrade or, you know, downscale or whatever they're doing, you know, give something to the kids, you know, bank of mom and dad, all that stuff. One or two and a hundred it's a different reason so some of the reasons would be uh they've moved to dubai uh and this property is lying empty and they're in you know tax-free in dubai they're just like get rid of it or um uh, they've inherited it and they've already got properties and the family's fighting over it so they're going to get a tiny slice anyway so who cares what man it gets sold for gotcha. or yeah, yeah. You know, the council's got an order on them because they've got so many dogs and the dogs are barking and the neighbors are complained and they have to leave the property, you okay. know, or, or bankruptcy or, you know, sadly, repossession, stuff like that. Yeah, so we yeah. looked for the situation and we would pick up the phone and just phone estate agents every day. So you're working the phones and you're listening to the stories and the feedback from the agents and what they're, yeah. you know, okay. Yeah. That's a great, yeah, it's very interesting because certainly my, I mean, this is this is more about the, the self-limiting beliefs, but my automatic assumption is that in this market, it would be possibly a struggle. Although now that interest rates have shot up, there will be some people in a bit of distress and they'll be saying, I got to get out of this property fast, yeah. you know? Yeah, they will. Yeah. Well, even in Barcelona, so I live partly in Barcelona in a, in a, in, in a neighborhood called Pobla now, which is... I, I mean, my flat is nine minutes from the Mediterranean, gorgeous. My street, Calle de la Ciudad de Granada, 500, so it's a 1920s apartment I live in, but 500 meters away is Facebook. So oh, well, yeah. you can imagine the kind of, and you know, there's a yoga studio in every street and it's, an, it's in I the- I know Barcelona well, yeah. It's a lovely, beautiful, beautiful city. It's so, probably one of my favorite cities, in fact. Oh, yeah. me too, which is yeah. why, and, and my son lives around the corner, why I bought the apartment. But but even in that neighborhood, like, you know, what is not to adore about that neighborhood? I still found three deals because the story, because something else was happening. And yeah. I wasn't even looking. I was just couldn't help looking in windows and talking to estate agents because it's fun. Yeah. Um, tell me this, Susanna, I, I'm just thinking about, the next thing that you did, you started to to recruit investors and yeah. bring investors on board. And did you bring them in as 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 partners, or you brought them in as lenders? Lenders. Um. So I uh, both actually. Forgive me. So they had three roles. They either bought a deal from me, great. So it was a one-off transaction. But you tend to find that they would uh, repeat uh, because. Yeah. You know, and after a certain number, they got confident and they, you know, or they, they, they'd sorted themselves out or they would then want to joint venture buy and sell together. Uh, so they did the funding. I did. We did the work. Or the third was they lent me money directly. And for the lending money directly, I ran a fundraising campaign. I absolutely I absolutely cleaned up. Uh, and I mean that with kindness. I I would go into you know, like bear in mind, like I didn't have much time. 
you know, my priority was not being out networking with people. My priority was putting the pajamas on the wee old raver yeah. so my kids were warm in the morning. So I would on I would network one evening a week, but I wanted to be at home, to be honest, but I had to, otherwise this business isn't gonna work. And so I would go into that room and I go, right, there's 40 people in this room and I would get 35 business cards and I would phone once the kids were at school the next day, 35 people once a day for five days until I got all of them or they were like, get lost, you stalker. <laughs> because I had to make do with the limiting ability to, to find contacts. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and, and I just be like, what are you doing in property? What's your objective? What's your time frame? And how much is your pot? So within two minutes, I'd find out whether they had money or not. And if they didn't have money, maybe, you know, they could be a volunteer in the business. And if they did have money, I was like, right, they're on my fundraising list until they what, said no. what room, what room was this? Uh, was this uh, something that you had organized or was it something that you were going along to and you were working the room? In the early days, it was something I went along to. I would go to two events in Bristol a month, and then I would drive, you know, with a sandwich and a Kit Kat to two events in London, because to be honest, they had more money in London, and then drive home that night and get home, at, like, you know, whacked at one in the morning. Yeah. And that was um, like property networking meetings or? Yeah. Or yeah, so in uh, here in England, people like Simon Zutzi, they run, um, I mean, I think there's about 70 property events a month that are advertised in the magazine, Your Property Network. Okay. Uh, so I would I would pick those and, and turn up early and leave late, stay sober, and uh, <laughs> collect business cards like a banshee. That's a great way to do it, yeah. I mean, that's, um, and, and it's obviously stood to you. So you raised, you cleaned up, you said. I'm kidding them with a the cleanup, but no, I cleaned up. Yeah, no, I because I couldn't afford not to. Yeah, um, of course. Yeah. So there was one event uh, organized by Ben and Barry in Bristol and really lovely people uh, but, uh, for Simon Zutzi. And he, I remember he said to them once, you, you, you numpties, she cleaned up in your room. They did all this gorgeous work of putting on this brilliant event for everybody. And I just went in and hoovered. And years ago, <laughs> somebody who became a really lovely friend of mine, Kevin Wright, who does property and he does some property training, um, Property Ninja, he said to me when he first met me, I've heard about you. And you're like, oh, what have you heard? He said, <laughs> your reputation goes before yes. you. Yeah. <laughs> he said, I've heard you're very decent, very honest, but you're a tank. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that doesn't feel too feminine. <laughs> but, you know, no option. We're going to make this happen. Then I'm going home and being mum again. That's great. I mean, I love that story. And in terms of the amount that you would be borrowing, uh, you, the max was a million, but I presume you never got a million from a single investor. It was lots of smaller or am I wrong? Um, uh, Fundraising is like a triangle. So you've got an, an, everybody wants the million from one. But unfortunately, you're going to get a small number of people at the top of the triangle with big money and then a medium amount of people in the middle of the triangle with medium amounts of money and then lots of people with small money at the bottom. Yeah. So uh, the larger guys, so the pattern was interesting. The smaller amounts of money, people were very fast to, to want to lend it to you. Yeah. Uh, but of course, you've got to be careful of things like collective investment scheme and you're only going to um, work with one person on one project. You don't want to be lumping money together. So yeah. you could use that for like small bits of cash flow to do small, small renovations. Maybe the middle guys would be quite good for a deposit. And I had an arrangement at the time with Shawbrook that they were OK 
with a deposit coming from somebody else. Now, they don't do this to everybody, so you've got to look up challenger banks. But my investors had to sign uh, certificates to say, we got no charge on the house. So I would have to put the charge against other properties I owned because Shawbrook were like, we don't mind the deposit coming from someone else, but basically they can't get their hands on the house if it all goes wrong. That's ours, baby. And then the top people, so that would, the middle people I do like their money plus bank money to buy the property. And then the top people in terms of um, value of money, I would just, uh, I had an arrangement with one guy that I worked with for years, brilliant guy actually. And um, he would lend me 600 grand a year. I knew it in advance. Um, and I would buy a couple of houses a year with his money uh, and then refinance the, uh, the houses, pay him back. And then he'd be like, not hounding, that's too strong a word, but like, could you please hurry up and spend this money again? I'd be like, okay. Yeah, and then yeah. I Go again. So with him, yeah. I would buy the houses cash, but it was yeah. a full mortgage, full legal terms and conditions. And what would I you... found, oh, sorry, the top gut, the top guys, those relationships took a lot longer, but they were the most reliable relationships in the long run. Once we'd agreed. And did they have uh, any kind of a first charge or anything like oh, that? Yeah. Uh, so they were giving you, they were giving you a facility of 600 grand uh, rather than saying, here's the money. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. Facility yeah. of 600 grand. I never saw their cash. No, it yeah, struck yeah. my lawyer in exchange for property. And they had first charge on that property and second charges or floating charges on other properties. Oh, yeah. You, you, you don't get to. And he had, I was one of five investment strategies. And he, he and I would meet quite regularly and, and he would tell me about his other four investment strategies. So he was figuring that two were going to come clean, two were going to be a bit dud and one was going to be average. Interesting. You know? Yeah, very interesting. And tell me in terms of um, the, the the kind of terms that you were offering. Um, I mean, obviously, interest rates have changed a lot. So there's there's been kind of a, an ups and downs and stuff. What were you able to afford to pay people for doing this kind of thing? I think the word afford to pay should be in uh, quotation marks. Let's be honest. If anybody's listening to this rather than watching the video, they'll see me hiding my face now. <laughs> sweating, um, yeah. Yes, sweating. So basically, you know, we, we started off this conversation about cash flow. Don't do this, kids. Um, so here was my thinking. And now I'm just trying to, like, excuse myself. So my top guy was super expensive. Bear in mind, interest rates were like 1% and, and I was paying him 16. 16. Okay. So it's like mes finance, basically. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And and that was way too expensive. So, um, so, so don't do this, kids. <laughs> way too expensive. So here my thinking was, and I'm trying to excuse myself now, was um, you're basically going to be having to find this discounted he's going to earn all the money from the first year if not the first couple of years uh, not that you're paying him back over two or three years you're paying him back so fast it's yeah. unbelievable i mean literally the day you buy that property you start applying for the mortgage even even if it's a wreck and, and yeah. you're pushing everything so fast because you want his money out so yeah. so i wasn't I wasn't keeping his money in a property for a year. I'd be trying to buy two or three properties with the same amount of money in gotcha. one year to to pull it back out. But yeah, yeah, I'm hiding my face, not with shame, but like, 
it was expensive. No, I, the thing is, is it works. If it works, it works. Uh, there, there was a guy, um, there was a business here um, in Dublin that started around 2009, 2010. And what they did, they had a completely different attitude to all of the banks. The banks were in bits after 2008. Yes. And this guy arrived into town and said, anyone out there who's gone bankrupt or who's in difficulty, I'm lending money. And uh, come to me if you want to, you know, restart your career or whatever. And so they were lending, but they were at 18%. Wow. And you also had to pay them to um, to do their due diligence. So yep. if you wanted to open a conversation, you needed to fund, I think it was 37 grand to actually pay for the due diligence they were going to do on your deal. Wow. And if it didn't pass muster, you weren't getting the deal. And so you had, but you'd be out of the 37 grand, you know, so yes. it obviously put a lot of manners on people and made them kind of make sure this deal works like before yeah. we pony up. But what's amazing is I've spoken to those guys since, and they were saying that they have met people that were, that went bankrupt, that no bank would touch because they were, you know, basically radioactive in the eyes of other banks. Yeah, and this, yeah. this guy helped them and they've gone, they've bounced back and they've made millions now. Good. And and they keep on going to the guy and saying, can we do another deal at 18%? Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because it's so simple for them to get money. And that is the other part to it. So I'm not encouraging anybody to pay that kind of interest, but that's the other part. So with this chap, because I'm straightforward and he's straightforward, of course we had legals. Of course it was a formal private mortgage. You know, it was yay thick on terms and conditions. But once we sat in a cafe and shook hands, it was happening. Yeah. He never reneged. Whereas, I, I mean, I sold it now, but I bought an office for my team to work in. And four days before I bought the office, my bank that I banked with for 15 years, you know, I had multi-million pound property portfolio, millionaire, all the rest. Changed their mind. Yeah. Changed their mind with four days to go. Thanks, guys. Why? Because our strategies changed. Nothing to do with me. So yeah. actually, I found the top end property uh, investors more reliable than the banks. So that was the other reason to do it. You yeah. know, you, you go meet up, you talk about a deal, you, you'd agree it, you'd fund it, get on with it. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think it makes a huge amount of sense. Uh, although obviously you do need to know what you're doing before you start drifting into that. And so you oh were God. well experienced before you kind of started. I do have clients that are kind of asking me about, oh, how can we get, you know, investors and I'd be like, well, you know, hold your horses. Like you're yeah. still learn, you know, you're still actually learning how to how to do this. Like don't yeah, don't yeah, jump yeah. in, don't get ahead of yourself. No, I the you... bookkeeper definitely, and I still work with her now. Every single Wednesday at eleven o'clock, we meet, and she she used to run so many cash flow predictions and uh, manage the books and manage manage all of that very carefully. So it meant that I could run a mile a minute, but I knew the gate was. In, you know, I only had two moments where I had two very small hashtag saved Susie Bacon. Now they weren't um, bankruptcy level, but they were like, I'm not going to be able to pay the bills. Um, and I and, and even then I collected from friends, but it was all legally bound. And at the moment, without going into any detail, I'm currently the provider uh, to one of my dear friends who's also a property investor worth millions. So I've got no worries there. Obviously, I've got the legal contract drawn up, but I've currently provided, should we call it funding for hashtag save someone else's bacon on a temporary basis. Not huge money, but, you know, tens of thousands, not hundreds yeah. of thousands. People yeah. find themselves just in a difficult moment and they it's great to yeah. have somebody to kind of help bail them out. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat>
Um, tell me this, moving into some different, some of the questions I like to ask, I mean, the best advice that you received uh, from somebody else in the last 15 years? It's not sexy. <laughs> I got I got two, um, but they're pretty unsexy, but they work. So the first is automate as much as you can. Not not like eliminate, automate, outsource and delegate, all that stuff. But um, so I've got a pro property portfolio and and it it, it it combines with the second. So, um, yeah, so it's the one piece of advice I've probably separated out of my mind thinking about this. So I have, you know, rent income coming in. So today it's just after the rent's being paid and then I have different bank accounts. So I have uh, repairs and maintenance, mortgages, uh, profit. Uh, I used to obviously have the investor one as well. And so what would happen is the rent would come into the rent bank account and then it would automatically on 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 uh, standing orders go out and pay everything. So not sexy, but um, steady and reliable. So you're not suddenly going, oh, my Lord, I missed a mortgage payment. And, yeah. and that really counts for things when the bank is saying, can you show me six months of mortgage payments? And can you get your bookkeeper to annotate every single tenant payment? You're like, yeah, yeah. Oh, that'd be amazing. She'd really love to do that again. <laughs> you know, so you, uh, you're you not showing one bank account. You're just showing all the tenants rent or yeah. you're just showing all the mortgages. Yeah, then, I think that's great. It's uh, it, it it's it's systemizing basically your, yeah. your, your thing. Yeah. And then um, the other the other one, again, super unsexy. And I'm so sorry. It'd be lovely to talk about raising millions of quid or doing hundreds <laughs> of deals, but it's managing your time. Uh, and I'm back to it now and I'm kind of fascinated by it. So 40% organizing uh, or 30% on deals, 30% on the money or investors, banks, whatever it's going to be. And 40% working on your business. And if you now one week, you're going to be all deals. The next week, you're going to be all money, you know, whatever the heck it is. But that 30, 30, 40 deals, money and organizing your business stood me in good stead. And because I've literally just come back after a three-year sabbatical um, and I've just recruited in a team um, and I'm not very good at managing my time. I'm just, um, I've I've got something called Time Doctor and it's, oh, yeah. yeah, now normally people use that for outsourced teams and my team is mainly in the Philippines these days. So initially we brought it in for that and now I'm observing myself. So so it tells me how productive I was. It it looks at keystrokes, you know, um, mass strokes, and and how much I'm tapping on the, on on the keyboard, mm -hmm. and it analyzes how productive as a percentage I was in terms of just actually inputting stuff into a computer, and and um, and also I'm I'm able to identify which which project I'm working on throughout my day. So I'm genuinely monitoring and measuring myself probably more strongly than I am with the team. The team, I just want to know that they haven't looked at cats on YouTube, do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, and yeah. have done a reasonably strong job. I'm really not going to micromanage somebody. But with me, I want to see, well, where are you actually placing your time? And within that, I have one of my team members, we meet every Monday to organize my diary. Like she organizes it well in advance. Days are, are detailed, like I don't work Fridays, a, and and you know certain days do certain things um and every single week we'll meet for up to an hour and a half and just plan the week the the, the month this the quarter the six months and the year and make sure it's in line with the kpis 
So none of that is sexy. None of that is like, go get cash. It's like, organize your time and organize your money. And if you've got that foundation, then you can spring off it. That's, yeah. that's my advice. Yeah, no, I, that's good advice. I mean, it's, it doesn't have to be sexy. It just, it's looking after the bread and butter basically. And, uh, uh but I, one of the things, yours, of... if you don't mind me asking, what would be some of your advice? I think um, patience and discipline is the advice that I always kind of recommend that it's, you know, people want to get into it and they want to get rich quick and stuff like that. And the first thing is, is that you have to have that little bit of patience, because if you think you're going to get rich quick, usually you're off on the wrong track uh, because it tends not to work like that. It tends to be that you'll get your fingers burned anytime I've rushed into something because I thought I was going to make money is I've lost all of the money that I put into that particular rush. <laughs> and so I, I've, I've pushed away from that. And then discipline is the big thing. And it's just having the discipline to do the due diligence, to do all of the, the risk analysis and all of that. Because when I started out, I was, you know, when you start out, you're, I, I always kind of talk about there's a gambler and there's a, the analyst. And when yes. you start out, you're kind of like the analyst and you're the analyst who is, you lack confidence because you're starting out. And so you analyze everything and you just go into the 10th and 11th, 12th, you know, double checking everything and all that. And that is the analyst at work. And that will mean that it slows you down and you kind of, you might miss a deal. Yeah. The, the complete opposite end of that is the gambler. And the gambler doesn't do any analysis. It's like gut instinct. This looks like a good deal. I'm all in, bang, bang, bang. You yes. want to find somewhere in the middle Agree. And and I find that it's important to kind of have the discipline to even when you're experienced and when you're when you do know what you're doing is you'll find that you're naturally moving towards the gambler when you are experienced and confident. Yep. And you've got to hold yourself back around the middle yes. and do the, the work that perhaps you think is beneath you and perhaps, yep. you know, you know best. And I can I can sense that this deal is fine. I don't need to do yeah. all those checks. I think that discipline will stand to you. I agree. So that's almost like following a process, isn't it? And saying, you know, here are the processes we go through before, da, da, da. Uh, and we don't really deviate from that. So yeah. with, with us, with the deals, we had a deal sourcing report, which sounds great. It sounds like we're, we've got that to go bling, bling, bling to the other people say, hey, buy this deal. Actually, all of the process was the same for every deal so by the time it went into a report and got released to our investors we'd already figured out that yeah we're absolutely sure as we can be that this is going to be a really good deal so yeah, yeah. it almost like had to pass muster well and i think it's a good thing there's a there's a terrible sort of habit of people who want to get into deal sourcing that they just go out they find the first property and they try to kind of offload it onto somebody and if yes. you've got if you've had the discipline to go and write a report and you know yeah. to articulate why this is a good deal yeah. then it shows that okay you've done your homework and so i'm confident to go and and, and pay you the five percent and also i think you know there's people that sometimes balk at paying a fee but if you've gone off and you've done all of that homework for them well then it seems reasonable i have had situations where people have sort of said here's a deal that I was thinking of getting into myself, uh, but I've changed my mind. And so I'd like you to buy in and, and pay me 5%. And I'm like, show me what you've done. And like, it's kind of like nothing there, you know? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And even the discipline, to use your word, on working with an investor. Um, again, I learned very early on that you incubate an investor, not just for them to trust you, but for you to trust them. Because about 2% of people are kind of, you know, um, and that's going to include your investor population. So the more you can have between five and nine touch points before you agree to work with each other, the more you can assess them as much as they assess you. And also for them, they've got a deeper footing with you. So if anything does go wrong, because it's property, so inevitably something at some point in some projects are going to go wrong, there's a stronger relationship. Mm. It's a very good point. And actually, I think there's um there's a study that I read about and it's they they call it the ZMOT formula. And what it is is it's seven eleven. Write that down. Seven eleven four. And uh -huh. that if for somebody to buy from you, they need to know, like, and trust you. Yes. And in order to establish that trust, they need to have consumed either consumed seven hours of your content or met you and had like a number of conversations and stuff. So you'll meet somebody in a coffee shop. You don't ask for money on the first meeting. No. <laughs> you meet no. them, you get to understand what's motivating them, what's driving them, what are their kind of like risk tolerances, Where's the red line that they don't want to kind of hear a deal if it's in this area. And that yeah. kind of time goes in for seven hours, but they're also looking for the different touch points. Like if you sat across the table from someone for seven hours, it's too much. Whereas oh. 11 touch points, it's kind of like, okay, I've looked at the videos and I've actually read the blog and I've listened to the podcast and I've met the person a couple of times. Yes. And then the fourth one is there's touch points and the, fuck, I've forgotten which one it is. Uh, is it, because um, I've been listening to Daniel Priestley recently. Oh, yeah, Daniel. Yeah, he's a friend yeah. of mine. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Well, um, yeah, I, I went and saw him in London uh, in November, about maybe November the 10th, something like that. It was quite Yeah, he's doing another thing day after tomorrow. I was speaking to him on um, Friday last, and um, he was saying he's, he's running another event, one of his events on the, I think it's the 4th or the 6th. And so it's... Um, He's a great guy. Yeah, he, he's the one who told me about the ZMOT formula. Yes. And I, so, think, I think the four from what he talked about, I didn't ever know it was called ZMOT. He is in four different locations, I think is the fourth where. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So it's 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 a it's a podcast. It's a whatever it might be. So it's it's a cafe, a hotel lobby, a, a podcast, YouTube, whatever it might be, yes. or your Instagram or whatever. Those are the four different platforms or different, you know, I suppose platform is the best way to kind of describe it, yes. uh, but 11 touch points. So whether that's 11 episodes or, yeah. or whatever it might be. Yeah. Oh, so one of the things we did years ago was we ran investor days and part of that was efficiency. Remember, you know, she wanted to warm the pajamas, yeah. talk to investors. Um, and so we would, and, and quite understandably, investors would ask the same questions, you know, with some differences, which is how safe is my money? Question number one. And how much do I earn? Question number two. And then lots of variations beyond that. So uh, every two weeks we would run an investor day in my living room in my other house. And maybe 20, 25 people would turn up, advertise at an event, right? Charge them 20 quid to make sure they're semi-serious. Yeah. Um, and then do a presentation, they would ask questions. And what it meant was, although they were getting a touch point that was for them, they're listening to the one person and meeting my team. For me, I was getting an effective touch point, which is 
there's maybe 20 people in the room. Although interestingly, if we set ego aside and we maybe should talk about ego in property because it's people's downfalls. Um, interestingly, 15 people in the room is the most efficient investor day you can do. And okay. so if you want to get 50 or 100 in the room to feed your ego, that's kind of silly. You're going to get more money and more, more deals done in a room of 15 than a room of 50. Well, you can you can work a room of 15, whereas a room of 50, you're going to have a lot of people chatting amongst themselves and you never get around to them. Yeah. 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 yeah so, so interesting. I had, I had to learn that and <clears throat> to take my ego away and go stick. Yeah. Well, the ego is something that can bring you down. I have what I refer to as my four E's and the four E's are the four things that will destroy your career. And one of them is your ego. Yeah. <clears throat> the other one is your emotion. Yeah. And those are the two internal ones that you have control over if you're aware, self-aware. And then the external is the economy. Yes. And then and then the last one, and I spoke about it like yesterday on one of my uh, YouTube videos is events and events come out of the blue, never expected, unanticipated. And it can be, you know, something as simple as we'll say COVID. Nobody yeah. saw COVID coming. Suddenly there's a world lockdown. Nobody yeah. saw the 9-11 attacks of 2001 coming. Suddenly everyone is, you know, sort of jumping, uh, jumping out of the airline businesses and all of this kind of stuff. And it, just like that, an event takes place and it destroys the market or it certainly upsets the market for a couple of weeks or months or whatever it might be. And that can be enough for your cash flow to stop. Yeah. Uh, and that's you out of the game. So always leave yourself a little bit of room but to wiggle. Really difficult when you're starting because now and maybe very briefly i can mention an event which i don't want to take us down that rabbit hole but um now i can i can manage certain events but when you are starting you know that cash that that working capital you're supposed to set aside i mean come on that was raided all the time i'm not saying you should i'm not advising anyone yeah, yeah. to do it um, and it was really difficult Needs to must, yeah. mentally move from that bootstrapping entrepreneur to always setting money aside. Um, yeah, and my sabbatical, just before COVID, I was going to go to Bali for six months and hire, hire a, a, a villa and, you know, have this beautiful sabbatical because I kind of made it. And, you know, thank goodness my event happened at that point in my life. And then obviously COVID happened, so I wasn't going to be able to do it anyway. Um, but uh, uh, and I don't want to go down this rabbit hole because I'm past it. But um, I've just come back to work. I got diagnosed. You ready? One, two, three, four different cancers. Oh my in... goodness! Wow. Yes. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And that's and... the reason that you went took the three year sabbatical. Yeah. Is it? Okay. Yeah. Wow. And so here's the life saving now uh, that and and before anybody freaks out, and I definitely had moments of like, gosh. This yeah. is quite a lot. Um, actually, statistically, people that get diagnosed with multiple cancers have a higher survival rate. And often really? it's, yeah, thank goodness. That's and often, interesting. Mm. Well, because once you're getting scanned, I mean, I must be the most scanned woman in, you know, in, in, in Bristol right now. So I am so clean. Whereas we, oh gosh, I don't even want to suggest this. We don't, I, don't, I was going to use you, let's not. We don't know that the passerby of my house right now is is incubating something yeah, and yeah. what typically happens is once you you know once you once you get diagnosed they go let's let's check you out and yeah, then yeah. they catch yeah everything else um so yeah i was incredibly fortunate that i was at the point in my career that the properties were built um and and my nurse early on the 
it didn't work with an amazing department at the beginning and and that's a little bit of an understatement and i asked my nurse what happens if it's stage four which is terminal and she said yeah well we stopped treating you and i thought go home yeah yeah no so we sold some houses to have a massive cash pile in case i needed to pay for everything and in the end i paid for like 150 grand's worth of treatment myself because i was unimpressed should we just say so Mm. i went I went to the best hospital, the, the Royal Marsden, and as a as a paying patient. So that, but if that event had taken me out in the beginning, that would have been incredibly tough. Yeah, you know, there'd, there'd be no kind of, well, I don't care what the treatment costs, I'm I'm paying. That, that that's what I mean by the, the 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 you know that sums up the word event. I mean, yeah. it's something happening, unexpected, and it can derail your life, your investment, your your career, whatever it might be. And a lot of people. You know what they that old statement? It's quite funny that um, you know people make plans and God laughs or whatever it is. It's like, <laughs> it, it's like the you know you're there and I, yesterday was a perfect example. I I was I love the first of January for setting making plans and for the yes. next you know three months this is what's going to happen and I set yes. all this time aside to do all of that work and then uh, I got a phone call and my mother was very ill and I had to oh. rush to to the hospital and in an ambulance with her and everything. Wow. But, it, she's okay thankfully now oh. but it's what's funny is that here's a moment like I was there oh I've got the whole evening I'm going to spend all this time and stuff and then in the end I spent like five hours in the hospital and yes. uh, so things just happen and that's you know that can either be financially or it can be you know life or you know time you yeah know, you just you just don't know and it, it actually makes me more a fan of property because uh, the passive to- nature of it to have that resource, I mean, I, you know, January the 19th and, and I, I leant forward and went, this better not kill me. You know, I was so like, no way. Um, but obviously you don't necessarily have the choice whether that's going to happen or not. And I simply stopped work because I was like immune system, you know, yeah, we're, yeah. you know, I'm going to play my part. You play your part. Um, and I'm, it's made me a greater fan of property because I've not worried about money at all. You know, I still have six figures income coming in from the rentals and I just made sure I had a massive war chest in case I needed to fly somewhere and pay for stuff. And as it was, I did pay for a lot. So I'm a huge fan of property, not just for the whole, you know, let's go to Bali and sit beside the beach, but also it can save your life. And it did, it did with me. That's unequivocal. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, um, Susanna, I'm conscious of time and what I'm, I'm going to do on that note, uh, which, which is an uplifting, positive note. Yes, let's I'm going do. To ask you, I'm, I want to just ask you, um, knowing now what you know um, and having had the career that you've had, yes. what would you say to your 20 year old self? What advice would you give? Ooh, well, I've been thinking about this, you know, because although you said that taking your time is a good thing one of the early bits of advice would be like, don't be taking so long, 18 yeah. months. Right jump in. Jump yeah, in. jump in and make some mistakes, but don't make them fatal. You know, um, make make small, you know, what, what do they say? Fail fast. Yeah, um, yeah. So, so I, 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 and then the other one is interesting because it could be, it, oh yeah, the second one was, was focus more on profit. So I think you get two kinds of property investors, don't you really? I don't know if you feel this. You get the people that want to build the long-term assets, the wealth, and I'm definitely one of those. So I'm a lifestyle rather than a 
uh, uh, empire legacy yeah yes uh -huh. and then you get the people who are like i'm all about the cash and you know they have the amazing cars and you know i was a multimillionaire with a, a, a car with a bumper tied on with string because a i didn't have the time and b i didn't want to spend any money buying a new car i wanted to buy houses so so i would actually go honeybee why don't we celebrate a little bit more in the early days you know, because I actually think that's not just about go buy yourself a fancy car or whatever the heck you decide to celebrate with. It somehow um, rewards you and brings that kind of Scottish Presbyterian work ethic, you know, <laughs> it kind of brings you away from that, saying yes. I have to suffer so that the houses can succeed. I actually don't think that was as necessary as as the way I laid it out. I mean, I was terrified, let's be honest. I was terrified it wouldn't work. So of course I wasn't gonna take any money out of the business for ages. But I do think I could have probably had a little bit more like, woohoo, money. Yeah. Time. yeah, yeah. So focus a little bit more on profit and a little bit less on long-term bricks and mortar wealth acquisition with hindsight. Um, but then I'm glad I'm here. So what am I complaining about? You know, and I bought myself a yeah. flat in Barcelona and it was for cash and all the rest of it. So, but th that is genuinely the advice I'd give my 20 year old. And I think it's corresponds to what you were talking about. You got time, kiddo. Have some yeah. fun. Yeah. Yeah. Very good point. Well, Susanna, if people you... want to, sorry, oh, sorry. you're going to ask you... me. What, what advice would you give your 20 year old? I would say, um, see the thing is is it depends obviously on what you've been through yourself and so yeah. obviously in my case i had I, I never had a mentor my father died at the age of 45 and oh. so i was involved in property at the at the ripe old age of 21 and wow. um i was looking after properties that he owned and yes. i was looking after uh, a development that he was in the middle of when he died Wow. And so I had to kind of roll up the sleeves and kind of pile in. Yeah. And I learned on the job, we'll say, and I learned a lot of stuff, which was great. But then I had some incredible success uh, and I had it in very quick succession. One one deal like this is the, the, the one that I kind of talk about when I'm talking about it. the best deal I, I ever did. So was, far, so far. So far, yeah, was uh, I bought a property in December. And uh, I had an offer from somebody who had been my underbidder and um, I sold it six weeks later for a 2.5 million profit. And it That's was, nice. it, it was just, it was incredible. It was just being in the right place at the right time. Yes. And, but after that, what happened was, is that success went to my head and Your legs suddenly, yeah. yeah, I suddenly thought, okay, I'm going to buy the, the penthouse in New York. And, yes. and then the next deal did the very same kind of numbers. Wow. And I kind of thought, okay, I can buy the villa in Spain now. Yes. And then the next deal did it again. Yes. And so I, I accumulated a huge amount of cash very quickly. And I suddenly thought, I've figured out how to make hundreds of millions. Yes. And I'm going to be incredibly wealthy in my lifetime. And yes. therefore... I'm going to live like a king for the next couple of years. <laughs> and so I was first class everywhere, new car all the time and all of that stuff. That's what success too quickly can do to you is it yes. can kind of cloud reality. And yeah. and so all of what I needed in retrospect now looking back is I needed a mentor yeah. who was going to keep my feet on the ground and say, and Gavin, that deal 
Yeah. You'll never do a deal like that again. Like six weeks for that kind of return. It's just not realistic, you know, and don't think that you're going to click your fingers again and do it. And it's like footballers when they're, you know, oh. when they're earning 50,000 a week and they think that That's they'll true. be earning this for the rest of their life. And then five years later, they're out of the, you know, they're retired. Like, And so I think that's the advice that I give is that don't let success go to your head and get a mentor. I agree. But my goodness, that mentor with you kind of walking on water at the time, that mentor, you'd have had to respect them beyond belief. Big time. Otherwise you just, you'd have booted them off. I, I remember going to my architect's cocktail party once. I was the only woman in the entire cocktail party, which was kind of fun. Um, and I met um, a guy who was the classic sort of, you know, late 50s, you know, fairly sizable tummy, bless him, but fascinating guy um, who was chief exec of a hundred year old, really significant um, construction firm in Bristol. One of the big ones, right? right. And it was fascinating. And we had such a great conversation and he said, um uh it, it kills me and i i you know it, it, it we have huge not arguments but professional arguments about this with my finance director because i want to spend the money but because we've been gone 100 years we've been through everything it you know not him personally but the company and the rule in this business which is why we're still standing 100 years later and they're one of the biggest construction firms in bristol was that we have to have a year's cash flow in the bank yeah. not profit cash flow uh, you know for one of the biggest construction companies that's in Bristol. huge money yeah that's a- huge money and he was saying to me you know i could you know you could see him kind of gripping his drink going i just want my hands in that money i could do so much with it yeah, and that yeah. always stuck with me because i thought that's an amazing experienced and yet hugely successful business and yes. he said, that's why we haven't been wiped out. We would yeah, have been. That's a, it's very instructive. Well, certainly construction is, is, is renowned for this kind of thing because you yeah. know there's a property blip and it's usually the clients that run into the money difficulties. And then they're yeah. the ones that can't pay the contractor. Yeah. And of course, he's got all the subbies that he has yeah. to kind of keep feeding and stuff. So, yeah, it's very it's a very good point. In 2008 here in Ireland, uh, 90% of all construction uh, jobs were lost. And uh, like it basically the, the market just collapsed to nothing, you know, and and then you lose all the skills. It's not. Yeah, even- they all went abroad and they retrained and stuff. So we can't we are only building now in this country, 33,000 houses a year. Wow. And in 2007, we did 90,000. And and we're in a housing crisis where we like the capacity, if we could double it in the morning, we would. Yes, but it's yes. that's the maximum that the, the industry can put out. So a friend of mine is, to be fair, he's part Polish and he imports his builders from Poland. Yeah. Because he speaks the language and, you know, all, all the other things. Our biggest problem in this country is now the housing crisis is so bad that we could double the capacity of our construction industry if we could go and bring in, say, 100,000 Polish construction workers. That would that would do it. But where yeah. would you put them? Because yeah. there's nowhere for them to be housed. And so... Yeah. That's the problem. We're stuck in this kind of like real catch-22 uh, situation. It is. It's catch-22. So, so interestingly, that the kind of, um, you know, uh, buy now, party later kid was saying, I'd tell my younger person to have more fun and spend a little bit more of the money. And you, who was like, 
making way more money than I was making is like, I would tell myself to like get ease something back. ease back. So yeah. we're saying meet in the middle, aren't we really? Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. I also find it interesting. So my, I've always been interested in this because my dad's dad died when he was 14. Um, and obviously you feel for your, your father, don't you? Yes, you imagine this yeah. beautiful little 14 year old losing his father. Yeah. Uh, and I think the stat is one in three British presidents and prime min it, American presidents and British prime ministers has lost a parent before the age of like, I think 15 or 16. Yeah. And it does appear to drive people to success because I guess they know other things can happen in life. So they don't yeah. waste time. Yeah. That's, that's a very good point. Right, Susanna, I think we're at the end of our time. What okay. if, if anyone wants to... We have to. Uh, <laughs> if anyone wanted to learn more about you and your company, the Good Property Company, what, uh, where is the best place to find you? Oh, it's all the usual socials. So there's a whole bunch of stuff people can download for free uh, from my website, thegoodpropertycompany.co.uk, um, free webinars, free checklists the youtube videos i think we got um well we got a quite a lot of youtube videos there so youtube susanna cole the good property company or instagram you know message me and either i or the team will reply you know all that stuff insta facebook linkedin yes i'd brilliant. be delighted to hear from people i really would brilliant well susanna it's been a real pleasure i thought i knew we were going to have a great conversation and indeed we did and so uh best of luck with everything and uh you Good luck too. with your ongoing career. Oh well, I'm left. I'm left wanting more. Maybe we can do another conversation sometime. That'd be lovely. We will. That'd be great. All right, Susanna. Thank you. All right, guys. I hope you enjoyed my conversation there with Susanna. As you may have gathered, the conversation was actually recorded back in early January, and I'm only getting around to posting it now because I had a number of other interviews in the uh, in the can, as we like to speak. Uh, as we like to say in the podcasting world. And so I've finally kind of caught up with a number of my recorded interviews. And this was one of the ones that I was really looking forward to putting out there. I have put links to in the show notes to Susanna's uh, company details and you can go and check her out. Um, she's got quite a bit of a social profile herself, social media, things like YouTube and stuff like that. And I, I would suggest you go and check out those as well because she's quite prolific with her own content, uh, no more than myself. So guys, I hope you enjoyed it and I look forward to catching up with my regular schedule and getting the next week's podcast out on time. So until next week, take care. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Behind the Facade. If you have any questions or topics you'd like me to cover in future episodes, please connect with me via the Facebook group that is called Behind the Facade Community. Alternatively, you will find me on social media. My handle is Gavin J. Gallagher. You can stay up to date with all of my content and the various projects I'm working on over on my website, GavinJGallagher.com. And while you're there, please do add your name to the join my tribe thing over on the right hand side this will ensure you're kept up to date via my weekly newsletter all of these links are in the show notes below that's all for now i will see you guys in the next episode